This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Focus podcast. I'm your host G Sampal. The ship has reached the shore. For the first time, United Nations members have agreed on a unified treaty to protect biodiversity in the high seas. On March 4th, a draft international agreement called the UN High Seas Treaty was finalized to govern the conduct of governments in open seas, which is the major part of the world's oceans or at least two-thirds of it. And these open seas uh, lie beyond the jurisdiction of any one country. Once ratified by the signatory countries, the agreement will become legally binding. This treaty, which has been dubbed the Paris Agreement for the Oceans, will also establish a conference of the parties or COP that will meet periodically so that member states can be held accountable. So what exactly does the UN High Seas Treaty propose? How will it ensure that biodiversity of the oceans is protected? And what does it say in terms of sharing of marine genetic resources, which was a key sticking point in the negotiations preceding the agreement? We discuss all these aspects and more in this episode of InFocus. And with us today is Kanchi Kohli from the Center for Policy Research Kanji, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I look forward to the conversation. So, Kanji, to start with, can you give us a quick historical overview of how this treaty came into place? I mean, why did people feel that it was needed in the first place? Because we already had something like the UN Convention of the Laws of the Sea, which has been there since 1982. Yeah. As you mentioned in your introduction itself, you know, this is being seen as a very important moment and it's been called the Paris Agreement for the Oceans just to step back and understand why this has been felt as an important uh, process. Uh, It builds on the 1982 United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, the UNCLOS. And I think what is important to understand is that the UNCLOS itself was uh, predated uh, the Rio Convention, which is where the issues of environment and development really came into the foreground. The ideas of sustainable development uh, were really institutionalized in international discourses. So in many ways, the UNCLOS, what the UNCLOS was, had done is uh, it kind of broadly uh, set what is uh, what is being called as the legal order for the seas. So it was about more about peaceful use of the seas, efficient use of the resources, and a bit about uh, conservation. What this High Seas Treaty tries to do is um, two or three things. Uh, and, the, and the process uh, of actually arriving at it uh, has, had started back in 2004 itself. One of the fundamental uh, differences in the High Seas Treaty is its focus on what is known as marine commons. Uh, so the idea is that this is uh, what is called the BBNJ, Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction. So, so far, a lot of the focus uh, was on, uh, you know, role of uh, nation states on uh, on particularly what they will do in their exclusive economic zones. But in this treaty, uh, two or three things become very important. Uh, one is what you do in on your coastal areas and in ex- exclusive economic zones and the implications on the high seas, uh, regulating the control and action and use of the high seas itself for a whole bunch of, bunch of commercial activities. Uh, as well as the third aspect is a, a, a large focus on conservation. Uh, and more about creation of marine protected areas in the high seas, 
to to count in some ways counterbalance the commercial interest uh, in the high seas. So in many ways, it's it's considered to be important because if ratified, these actions become binding, which was not the case uh, earlier. Right. Uh, I mean, you you made several different points on why uh, this treaty was found to be necessary. But I have a more fundamental question. Like, I mean, generally the high seas is generally not. Uh, in the foreground of people's thinking or minds because nobody lives there, right? I mean, we don't really think about it. Uh, we don't even travel through them. As, uh, actually, even cruises, I think, mostly happen along the coast. So why is marine biodiversity or the marine commons of the high seas so important? It's, it's not like, say, a forest uh, which is near a city or a state capital or which is inside your uh, country's jurisdiction. So even though it's, it is the commons, why is it so important to conserve it? Is there any particular scientific or uh, any other reasons why we need to be so, uh, so concerned about protecting its biodiversity? Yeah, so I think there are two uh, two aspects to this. One is that it is still a very understudied uh, area of, uh, of 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 understanding what is the kind of nature of biodiversity which is there in the in the in these in the high seas or the open seas. And the other thing is also because it is understudied, it is equally vulnerable. And if you see, uh, I think a lot of this, uh, the the push for conservation, the push for protecting and regulating access to the high seas is because there is increased interest in, uh, in these areas with when it comes to uh, transnational trade, marine genetic resources. In many ways, it's, you know, one has to embed the high seas treaty in the conversation around uh, all countries talking about blue economy, blue growth, and this almost becomes like, uh, you know, a marine commons, which is available uh, for, for uh, uh, all countries to be able to tap into. Now, it also becomes important because, you know, it comes also at the heels of several international conventions calling out for the protection of the high seas, whether it's the Convention on Biological Diversity's Aichi targets, or it's about uh, you know the discussion on, around climate change, which is talking about the importance of the oceans for uh, climate capture. So there are there, there's a dual call for almost protecting and conserving these areas, as well as uh, in many ways because there is high level of commercial interest in these areas. How does one regulate it so that it's not the first come first serve basis? In many ways, those who have uh, more more uh, means to exploit the, the these areas, uh, you know, reach there first uh, and are able to uh, extract much more. So I would say it's both. So basically, to avoid the what what they call the tragedy of the commons. In some ways, yes, um, and also I think it has to be understood in the light of that. There's a huge interest. There is there are the limits of land and coastal areas are being hit in many countries, and these are unexplored territories. Uh, which are uh, which are already being tapped, but I think uh, there's more and more international interest in it. Right. Now, in the context of this uh, treaty, one of the key uh, mottos or talking points or slogans has been this 30 into 30 goals, you know, where you serve or you, where you conserve 30% of your land, of, of the planet's land and 30% of the planet's oceans and so on. So how is this 30% arrived? Why is it 30%? Why not 40% or 50%? And what is its rationale and how realistic is this? Because we also know, for instance, that you know, uh, 
countries conduct underground uh, uh, nuclear tests and so on which which does happen in the high seas how will the business does this treaty have anything to say about those aspects for instance so the treaty actually exempts to the best of my understanding military uh, interests in the uh, in the high seas because that's i think um, it that's an entire completely different discussion uh, which is uh, which is, so military vessels will be treated very differently uh, not as part of this agreement this is more economic interests that uh, that we are talking about uh, the 30 by 30 is is actually in in the the, the uh the discussions in the uh, as part of the kunming Mon- montreal protocol really embedded and focused on uh, basically 30 30% of the world's land and coastal areas and oceans have to be protected by uh, 2030 so that's that's one part of the 3030 uh you know discussion which was arrived at through a large intercountry multilateral negotiation with a lot of scientific knowledge uh, that has that had been uh, brought on the table uh, so in many ways that seems like an uh, something that is resolved uh, uh, both scientifically and politically at this point of time the realistic part is is actually a very important questions because um, and it will become a important question as part of the high seas treaty as well uh, going ahead because uh, it this will be uh, this 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 will uh, come to be contested both with respect to developing nations asking for their right to develop and all the uh, all the discussions about common but differentiated responsibility which have been underplay in both the convention on biological diversity as well as the climate change conventions will be part of this uh, discussion as well um, it it really depends on how much countries want to give up their blue economy ambitions uh, how much they want to even give up their uh, activities in exclusive economic zones that are going to impact the high seas it will also be important for it it's important conversations for least developed countries small island island nations who've been raising issues of vulnerability so how this will play out uh, in the international discourse will uh, is is a huge is an important political economy question and, and a geopolitical question which we will only see play out in the near future right now coming to the actual uh, process of how this entire agreement and and the associated compromises from different uh, parties uh, developed uh, one key uh, point which has made headlines is the was the conflict between developing and developed countries on the question of how marine genetic resources or mgr as it's called and the profits deriving from their exploitation how these two aspects are going to be shared now what were the differing perspectives on this question how was finally a compromise reached and what does the compromise say so marine genetic resources actually are very important today commercially for the biotechnology industry whether it's uh, pharmaceutical and other kinds of bio- gen- development of bi- biofuels and all other kinds of genetic sequencing that is happening around uh, uh, using marine genetic resources one of the- like by marine genetic resources like what kind of animals or plants are we looking at octopuses and like, yeah, things think, like that like yeah so it could be all kinds of marine resources both flora and fauna so it could be both uh, plant based uh, you know uh, extractions that that are taking place as well as um, sea sea animals which we, some of them are known some of them may not be known at all uh, you know high sea fishes uh and other kinds of uh, marine mammals that we we may we which we may be seeing from very far off but you know extracting small and big 
species uh, that that will be that is that is very much part of the scientific uh, research and development that is part uh, that is going on internationally so one of the things that the wealthy nations were really talk talking about where there is control of research and development where there is funding uh, for all this gen- uh, digital uh, genetic sequencing was basically saying that because you are actually uh, putting in finance and resources into sequencing uh, you know uh, of uh, genetic resources there needs to be intellectual property rights given to uh, all those uh, wealthy nations or the private corporations all the universities that are engaged in something like this now this becomes a problem uh, and uh, you know again you link it to the larger discussions on uh, intellectual property rights is that how do you actually determine intellectual property rights in the common seas and uh, and the the response from a lot of the developing nations was um, and other nations who were not doing the r&d is that because it's the commons these are common heritage resources this needs this there needs to be benefit sharing uh, that is arising out of any kind of knowledge generation or extraction from from these areas the mechanisms of this are going to be still um, you know still evolve over a period of time uh, but uh, they still need to play out but the fact is that the agreement uh, uh, the high seas agreement very clearly establishes that this knowledge will need to be shared uh this knowledge need will need to be uh, it cannot it doesn't really talk about intellectual property rights on this knowledge so in many ways the compromise that has been arrived at is through the idea of knowledge sharing and technology sharing especially when it comes to uh material that gets generated or uh, scientific knowledge that gets generated through the sequencing process uh, specifics of this is 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 i'm sure will emerge over a period of time right i think given in terms of a broad principle to some kind of an acknowledgement that uh, this is something which derives from the commons and therefore needs to be shared as opposed to the entire uh, discourse of intellectual property i think that's a big positive uh, one can take away from this treaty mm. so and uh, now moving on to a broader question here i mean the the, the broadest framework for all these agreements to do with conservation and biodiversity of course is uh, at the at the present moment it is climate change so can you talk a little bit about whether and how uh, this particular treaty on oceans will it have a bearing on ongoing multilateral global efforts to fight climate change on climate action climate mitigation and so on so i think one of the things that has emerged in the last few years is a is a broad convergence of several of these conventions so you you see the convention on biological diversity talking about climate change you talk about you see the you know the climate change discourse talking about biodiversity both these conventions talking about uh, uh, you know um, uh, sustainable development goals so in many ways what you're seeing is a convergence so so it's not um, it's not surprising that the climate discourse will be very much part of um, you know uh, the discourse on uh, conserving biodiversity because you also see um, you know, there is a lot of dis- discussion uh, and 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 scientific uh, deliberation on uh, the role of the oceans in the carbon cycle and uh, you know also the whole issue of uh, issues of climate mitigation climate induced disasters so we you know oceans uh, absorb around uh, this knowledge out there which is uh, oceans absorb around 25% of carbon monoxide uh, so that lot of the conservation projects of carbon ca- capture are likely to be linked to that discourse 
Um, the use of the high seas is also connected uh, with uh, how coastal areas of uh, uh, you know, and how how all the developments in the uh, you know in the in the coastal areas of nation states or uh, countries actually develops. How uh, how island nations have already started uh, facing uh, vulnerabilities of climate induced disasters. So uh, I think the climate change discourse, including the the point about temperature rise in the seas, is going to be very clearly linked and embedded uh, as envisaged. With, with the high seas treaty as well. So going ahead, you may actually see uh, linkages between the emerging climate law and the UNCLOS, uh, the law of the seas uh, in, a, in a bigger way. Right. I mean, as you said, uh, as you pointed out just now, I think oceans are also a kind of a big uh, carbon sink. So there is also uh, a link at the natural level. Now, in terms of going, moving on to the reactions, uh, positive and negative to this uh, treaty, on the one hand, it's been hailed as a landmark Achievement. On the other hand, some conservationists have criticized the ag- agreement as well, uh, saying that it doesn't go far enough in terms of legally mandating environmental impact assessments as envisaged by the treaty when it comes to uh, commercial activities such as drilling, uh, deep sea mining and so on. So uh, does the treaty envisage a certain kind of environmental impact assessment which is no longer or no, not binding on national governments? Or is there any kind of legislative action on this impact assessment side of thing, which is uh, clearly defined in the treaty? See, I think first one needs to acknowledge that the treaty is relying on very uh, are, are relying on models uh, of regulation which have been in existence for a while now, whether it's marine protected areas or environment impact assessments. These have been in in in, in since the 1960s and 1970s. So the verdict on how effective these mechanisms themselves are is out there, and how countries are really uh, how how the countries really treat uh, these these models uh, is also uh, there's a lot of experience in literature that is out there that discusses this. But I think uh, one needs to I mean the the critique is is valid to the uh, to the large extent that it will largely depend on uh, countries to figure out how much they will push for environment impacts assessment in exclusive economic zones and coastal areas. Uh, we do see in, in, in countries like India, where the environmental impact discourse and the environment clearance regime has been contested. It's been spoken about. It's been called out by activists uh, and communities uh, in terms of its dilution. So one doesn't know how strong uh, it will remain uh, given. Uh, so. so if you see two aspects of the EIA discourse as part of this treaty, one is uh, uh, regulating actions in the coastal areas and EEZs and how they impact uh, the high seas because uh, any any oil spill or drilling activity in EEZs itself we can, can impact the high seas. And the other is the environment impact assessments for projects that, are being, that will be undertaken in the open seas or high seas. And how how that will imp, uh, you know reversely impact uh, coastal nations. So while there are much more clearly defined mechanisms at national levels, which which can or cannot regulate or may or may not regulate uh, the actions of countries in in the um, in the coastal areas, uh, the although there are very elaborate chapters uh, that talk about the need for cumulative impact assessments, they talk talk about need for um, you know doing environment impact assessments 
and taking permissions from uh, uh, institutions that will develop over a period of time at an international level. It's too early to say whether it will effectively pan out. The experience with these, these mechanisms does not augur too much faith in the way it will pan out. And given the given um, how much uh, how much is at stake in the high seas, even for commercial interests. So it's too early to say in terms of um, whether whether it will be effective or not. But the the caution and the precaution that is being sp- spoken about that you know it is um, uh, it's uh, it's may not be strong enough is worth uh, worth uh, worth taking on board. So you're saying that when it comes to uh, say projects, say deep sea mining or drilling projects in the high seas and their impact on uh, on on island uh, nations, you know, tiny island nations, whatever. There is no uh, no such mechanism in place to ensure that there is an environment impact assessment that is compulsorily done by some commercial exploiter in the high sea so that it doesn't affect an island, a vulnerable island nation. So there is basically, there there is talk about regional economic inter- integration organizations. There is talk about uh, developing protocols, but that clarity may not, is not really clear, is, is not coming out from this agreement itself. Now, that is not to say that in future sittings, they may not, there will be institutional mechanisms or more elaborate approval mechanisms that will emerge, um, you know, and once this treaty has, is ratified and, and agreed upon by uh, by countries. But at this right. point of time, it's broadly at a principle level. Okay, okay. So you outlined two broad uh, principles for environmental protection, uh, which which have been followed over the years. One is, of course, uh, this whole concept of protected areas, which are like off bounds for commercial exploitation, etc. The other is this whole uh, impact assessment. Now there is a third uh, principle, which is uh, the polluter pays principle. So whoever does the damage will have to sort of do the compensation. So uh, how does this work uh, in the high seas treaty context? Like uh, are there enforcement mechanisms for this or is this also broadly agreed at the principal level and so on? At this stage, I think it is uh, it is uh, at a principal level uh, from my reading of the uh, of the treaty itself as well as the, the kind of discussions that are going on um, uh, around it. So it, it is definitely acknowledged as a principle you will also see its relevance from a lo- uh, to a lot of discussions that are happening with respect to loss and damage in other conventions and, and uh, other platforms. So, polluter pays is a, again an old principle, which as you as you outlined, it is in case your actions re- re- uh, result in, in in polluting the high seas, whether it's through the your work in the you know the actions in the exclusive economic zones or projects in the high seas itself. Then there is a uh, there is a, a payment uh, for damage and restoration etc. That needs to, the mechanism needs to be arrived at. Now again, this is a history of there is a history of polluter pays principle uh, makes us also cautious of the fact that this principle is effective only to the extent that you can you can um, you know uh, put a value on the damage. Uh, and with so much of the marine areas and high seas completely un- not understood, you don't even understand it fully. So putting an economic value, putting a cultural value, and the loss to indigenous indigenous knowledge in this area is still an un- unexplored. Uh, you know, as 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 uh, as people uh, who who are involved in uh, in these treaties would want to acknowledge it, but how do you actually calculate the damage when you don't know it? You don't know what is lost. Right. I think that's a very uh, 
very critical point here I mean, unless you know the value of what is being destroyed how do you get the destroyer uh, or the exploiter to sort of uh, cough up the damages in in monetary terms so i think that we'll have to wait and see how that develops one final question uh, before we wind up so in 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 the climate negotiations we saw that there was a fair bit of uh, wrangling and you know hard negotiations on the question of sharing the costs of climate mitigation action so in this treaty too i mean i, I imagine there would have been a lot of uh, back and forth on sharing of costs for uh, protecting uh, biodiversity of the high seas so this is also important because not every country is equally invested in either exploiting or in terms of the capacity to exploit the high seas we have got so many landlocked countries for instance uh, which may not have any stake uh, presumably uh, in this whole thing so how does the cost sharing for protection of the high seas uh, mapped out in the treaty i may not be able to fully comment on the negotiations and how it was mapped out in the treaty itself but i think broadly i think financing of both the projects as well as the conservation mechanisms is likely to remain a, a vexed issue just as it has been with climate mitigation and adaptation programs or just transition or or countries asking for uh, financing for conservation projects uh it is you globally one is seeing countries actually invest whether it's landlocked or not landlocked invest more in um economic projects than uh, climate adaptation mitigation and uh, or or for that matter conservation projects so i think this uh, i'm i i do see this as as being uh, again an important area that will Uh, come up in subsequent negotiations to say didn't the eu promise to or pledge some amount of money for uh, protecting biodiversity uh, related actions some 42 billion dollars or something i seem to have read some it is possible uh, I, i may have missed that uh, actually uh, in terms of but it could be uh, and uh, it could be definitely that there are eu eu which has actually been part of uh, this uh, has pushed this uh, in in a great deal they have would have uh, but again how it will get distributed and what kind of projects it will get distributed into that is uh, that that verdict is still out there right i think uh, that sort of wraps up this episode of in focus i think this is a very important treaty no doubt about it it marks a step forward from where we were and the high seas is again it's it's the commons nobody has seems to have a stake in protecting it but this treaty by taking a step forward in terms of making it legally binding once it gets ratified i think it will be a big step forward also in the context of climate mitigation action thank you so much kanchi for joining us and for sharing your uh, thoughts on this uh, very important development thank you so thank much thank you thank you for having me in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon.